This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, so many people dream of being an astronaut. It's an amazing job. You can imagine, filled with adventure. But what happens to astronauts when they return from space? Like physically, to the body? Because an American has just set a record for the amount of time in orbit. You might have seen this. More than a year in space. So then how does your body even begin to recover from that? Well, later we're getting into this with a space expert. If you love all things space, you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Also coming up, the Disability Royal Commission report. It's done. It's been handed to government. We've been covering this Royal Commission for years. So what happens now? We'll find out. First, though. Hack. Do you feel like you've had enough information? No, not really. How do you think you'll vote? I'm not too sure yet. I do need to do more research about it before I make a decision. On Triple J. Have you decided how you're voting in the voice referendum? Because if you haven't, then the next couple of weeks, you're going to be bombarded with information from all sides. Young Australians now make up a huge proportion of voters. We know that. There are more people under 40 voting now than boomers. So how are the campaigners from the yes and the no camps of the voice debate reaching young people? Who's been more successful at cutting through? Especially on the platforms that you're on the most, like TikTok, Instagram. I'm interested to hear what you think of this. What are you seeing a lot? What's hitting with you? Message in 0439757555. First, though, Shalala Madora has been taking a bit of a look. Scrolling through TikTok can be a bit of a minefield at the moment. There's just so much content on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. It's hard to know where to start or what to trust. I read a whole book on the Voice to Parliament so that you don't have to. Imagine being a black one, voting yes to the Voice to Parliament, knowing that you're breaching our Aboriginal protocols. I'm voting no and I'm not racist. We're the only Commonwealth country that doesn't have a treaty with its Indigenous peoples. And research has found that the No campaign has been totally dominating that platform. The algorithm on TikTok definitely suits negative messaging. Dee Madigan is a marketing expert who's done heaps of work for the Labor Party. She's also a strong Yes supporter. Here she is explaining why the No campaign has been so successful on TikTok. Where TikTok sort of works best is when people sort of go off and do their own organic messaging. And I think the Yes campaign was probably a bit nervous about that because it tends to get a bit wild. In general, it's easier to sell a negative message, especially when that message doesn't require any kind of behavioural change from voters. It's easier to campaign against things than for things because swinging voters vote against things, not for things. We're seeing the No campaign capitalise on that. I think the No campaign has done relatively well in terms of tapping into the interests of the youth in terms of using social media spaces. 21-year-old Miles Gerard is a law student and Kuruma Dungari man. He's part of the established No campaign and he reckons his side has been smarter with where they allocate their resources. The No campaign is really active on TikTok and on Facebook and Instagram and a lot of other um, social medias like uh, LinkedIn too. The Yes side is outspending the official No campaign more than tenfold on things like slick TV ads. Dee said young people were never really the target of that ad, which uses a lot of nostalgia. I think the John Farnham stuff was good for 
resetting the campaign and getting the older people who are feeling a bit, you know, disgruntled about it, getting them happier. I don't think it was ever going to be a vote switcher for young people. Also, the Yes campaign spent a lot of time in the early days getting industry leaders, sports clubs and high-profile celebrities on board. The spirit of Australia says yes. Whereas the No campaign has been much more grassroots. Which is a, strategically a better way to reach young people who don't have the cult of celebrity that you know people my age grew up with. Then there's the fact that young people consume information in a totally different way to older people. I think they really just want to have a snappy version of the facts. So my name is Maggie Blandon. I'm a proud Palawa woman from Luchawita, Tasmania, and I'm currently the communications coordinator for NAM Law Students on Voice. Maggie is 23 and in her last semester of law school. Her group has been putting out neutral, fact-based content on The Voice and what it'll mean. They're so overwhelmed at the moment. They really need to just hear the facts. What, what even is the question that we're voting on? What will we even see on the 14th of October on the ballot paper? They just need those kind of facts. Since the project is run by young people, they're really mindful of how young people get information. We're trying to keep our videos quite sweet and short. Maggie's noticed that there's heaps of bots spewing some pretty gross comments on her group's social media. I know that I've had to have days of social media just to reground and recentre myself because, you know, you're logging on and you're seeing all of this harmful content. Miles says abusive content and deliberate misinformation doesn't work because it means people tune out, especially young people who are more likely to acknowledge racism and call it out. All this descending into name-calling now and this negativity and instead of having healthy, robust discussions about our Aboriginal community and our most marginalised in this country, it's just been a disservice to Aboriginal people. Polling consistently shows that young people are among the group most likely to vote yes. I think the Yes campaign probably banked young people's votes and maybe shouldn't have. And I think there's a lesson to be learnt there. Dee acknowledges that taking youth votes for granted has given the no side a chance to flourish on platforms like TikTok. But she says that's not the end of the story. In the other social media platforms, particularly YouTube and Instagram, the Yes campaign has had far bigger traction. So I think there's a tendency with this campaign to talk only about TikTok and the failures of the Yes campaign on TikTok. And and it's fair to say the no has probably performed better on TikTok, but I don't think that's the whole conversation about the campaign for young people. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. I am interested to hear what kind of voice content you're seeing a lot of on your social feeds, what is hitting with you, turning up in the algorithm. If you're still undecided as well, what is making it so hard to decide one way or the other? Message in 0439757555. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I will be voting yes. However, I do agree that the government has done a terrible job of educating the public on this topic. Another person says, I'm concerned about a lack of consultation that I'm hearing from elders. Well, let's get into this a bit more, the information, the strategies here behind the campaigns. Someone who's been looking into this a whole heap is Beck Strading, an Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at La Trobe Uni. She's with us now. Hey, Beck, thanks for coming on Hack. 
Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. We're a couple of weeks out from the referendum. Can we expect the voice content to explode on our feeds in that time? Yes, I think we can expect that. That's certainly the trend that uh, my colleagues and I have been tracking. All of the content around uh, the voice is really taking off big time on those platforms at the moment. And how much of media reporting in Australia at the moment is dedicated to the voice? So at the moment, uh, reporting on The Voice constitutes a bit over 6% of all news reporting, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is more than the AFL is getting, even though it's finals time. Uh, It's getting around 4.1% of the coverage. And it's also a big increase from what we were tracking two weeks ago, where coverage of The Voice uh, was at around 4% of all news coverage. Uh, So while it doesn't sound like a huge amount, it is actually pretty significant and it is the biggest news story that Australians are talking about at the moment. We've just been hearing a bit about the kind of strategies that are being used by the different sides. I'm wondering, do you think the no side has been smarter with its messaging or more targeted? How do you reflect on how that messaging has been pumping out, particularly on social media? I'm not sure that the no has been smarter with the messaging so much as it's been more strategic on where it's directing its messages. So uh, there's a couple of ways uh, that this works. The first is that it has been, the no, no campaigns have been targeting younger voters on TikTok. So we know that almost half of Australian voters are millennials uh, or they are members of Generation Z. Uh, And we also know that young voters are more likely to vote yes. Uh, So no campaigners have been trying to target this particular demographic uh, by using TikTok, where there are over 8 million Australian voters and probably around 70%, we calculate, uh, of those voters are under the age of 34. The other thing that the No campaign is doing in terms of uh, where they're promoting their advertising uh, is towards uh, two states in particular, South Australia and Tasmania. And the reason that they are targeting those states is because they see them as being vulnerable uh, to voting uh, either yes or no. So they're essentially, we can think of them as swing states. Uh, And the yes campaign needs to get uh, four out of the six states on board in order to be successful. So there's two ways in which no campaigners have been strategic in the way that they are presenting their message. Whereas what we find is the Yes campaign has been a bit more sort of scattergun in its approach. It needs to get its message out to a broader range of voters across the country. Interesting. You are listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Beck Strating from La Trobe Uni about the kinds of information we're seeing pouring out as we head closer to the referendum. Beck, what about disinformation? How big of a problem is that at the moment? Yeah, we are tracking uh, a lot of disinformation uh, around the the voice to parliament referendum, particularly uh, targeting the Australian electorate. Commission, uh, and we and we're sort of finding that 
these attacks on the AEC are really about trying to undermine the public's trust uh, in that institution, uh, which is a bit of a problem because the AEC is actually a fairly trustworthy public institution in Australia, but it's part of this broader campaign that parts of the no supporters are, are what they're trying to do here is to create confusion or to create or to um to to sow doubt upon the legitimacy of the referendum and to cast doubt on whether or not the result is going to fairly or accurately depict how Australians uh, feel about this particular issue. Beck, have you noticed a change in how younger voters are being really targeted with uh, this campaign in the lead up to the referendum compared to maybe elections, state elections, federal elections, where we have noticed in the last few years, young people have been kind of ignored a little bit to the detriment of governments and political parties. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So certainly the No campaign is paying close attention to younger voters uh, through TikTok. We've also seen the um, Yes campaigns launching a social media campaign directed towards young people uh, about how to engage in conversations with relatives. And I think it's called hashtag ring your rellos. There is a sense in which the, the Yes campaign uh, may have not been engaged so much with reaching young voters because there may have been an assumption that young voters were already trending towards voting yes anyway. But there are risks in that sort of approach or there are risks in feeling like a particular demographic is already on board. It's definitely interesting to get a bit of a lay of the land a few weeks out. We appreciate your insight into this. You've been researching it for a long time. Beck Strading from La Trobe Uni, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. And we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, I will be voting yes, and it's mainly because of the toxicity I'm seeing from the no supporters herding together and bashing down anyone trying to promote a positive message. Someone else, though, says, I've been following First Nations activists on Facebook and they're all telling people to vote no. I'm not Indigenous and believe I shouldn't even have a vote on something that doesn't affect me at all. Look, we're going to keep checking in on this. We do have a few more weeks before the referendum. A lot's going to happen in that time. We'll make sure we keep you across it. Hack. The Disability Royal Commission has delivered its final report to the federal government after years exposing shocking violence and abuse on Triple J. Today is a huge day in Australian history. The findings of a massive inquiry, a royal commission into abuse, neglect, exploitation in the disability community have been delivered to the government. Now, when I say huge, I mean huge. Four and a half years of confronting often traumatic evidence from more than 10,000 Australians. We still don't know what's in this royal commission report. The government's got it. And already we're hearing some ministers warning we can expect it to be disturbing. But we're going to know soon what's in it and then what happens. What's the next step? Well, let's check in with someone who's been following this from the very beginning. You know her well, former Triple J newsreader, now the ABC's disability affairs reporter, Naz Campanella. Naz, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Dave. Can you explain what exactly has happened today with this disability 
Royal Commission report. Yeah, look, this is a pretty big milestone for the disability community today. And I guess to set the scene for you, the, the community campaigned for this Royal Commission years ago after hearing decades of violence and abuse against people with disability. And it really just wanted everything to stop. It wanted it to to put an end to all of that. So after lots of campaigning, the Royal Commission got underway and really it's been a huge body of work where today we had the six commissioners of the Disability Royal Commission go to Canberra and they handed the report to the Governor-General and it will be made public tomorrow after it's tabled in Parliament. So it's almost kind of full circle for the disability community. It fought for this Royal Commission, it has sat through it for four and a half years and here we are waiting for this report to now be made public. And I guess we don't know what's in it yet, but we can expect it to be very big, very extensive after Mm. four and a half years. Not every Royal Commission is that long, but also we can expect some really troubling stuff in there as well. You absolutely can. So it's going to be multiple volumes and probably over 200 recommendations in this report. And that reflects really how big this Royal Commission has been. It hasn't just looked into group homes or employment. It's looked into the entire lifespan of a person with disabilities life from the time they're born, education, employment and everything in between. And it's looked at the violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation that people experience. Now, there are 4.4 million Australians with disability in this country and many of us have experienced some form of violence, abuse or just even discrimination. Like we heard constant stories of discrimination in so many aspects of a person's life. We heard people being sexually assaulted by carers in group homes, people being paid as little as $2 an hour for their work, and it's totally legal. And so people have shared really deeply personal and troubling evidence throughout these four and a half years. You are constantly speaking to people within the disability community about, you know, the evidence they're giving, maybe their reaction to the disturbing stuff they've heard. What are they telling you about what they want to come out of this report? Look, there's really mixed emotions from the disability community today as this all kind of comes to a head. And on one hand, they're really hopeful that change will finally come about with these recommendations. But on the other hand, they're really nervous and concerned that the recommendations won't go far enough, that will it actually do something to stop the violence and abuse? And I think at the end of the day, what the community really wants is to ensure that the people who are brave enough to share these stories and their experiences, that their pain and trauma hasn't all been for nothing. Have we already been seeing some steps to improve things even before the Royal Commission wrapped up? Yeah, there's definitely been some changes already. For example, you know, we heard a lot about the poor treatment of people with intellectual disability in the healthcare system. And there's now a roadmap that's been introduced in the last couple of years to guide the healthcare professionals in this country around how to better support people with intellectual disability and their families. And, you know, there's a lot of work being done in terms of employment to make sure that you know, the, the the stats, the poor stats of unemployment of people of working age with disability that haven't changed in 30 years, that we're starting to t- try and tackle some of that now. So, yeah, you can argue that some of the evidence that's already been shared, those people that were brave enough to talk and, and have their say, 
their, their stories have already contributed to enormous change, but there's still so much more work that needs to be done is the argument from the community. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the ABC's National Disability Affairs reporter, Naz Campanella, about the Disability Royal Commission report being handed to government today. It's going to be made public soon. We'll know what's in that. Naz, as I said, you've been covering this for years. I imagine you're feeling personally a lot of things at the moment. Can I ask, as a person with disability yourself, what's going to stick with you from this whole process? I think for the most part it's those stories that, I mean, I I wasn't surprised by anything I heard because apart from knowing about the violence and abuse that's been happening for decades to people in my community, I've experienced some of the the things that people talked about. The discrimination in in the workplace, the discrimination about getting a job, having your ability to be a parent questioned. Um, being segregated in education, I experienced those things myself. So it was pretty hard to then listen to other people sharing those experiences. But I think some of the things that will really stick with me and that were really quite upsetting is just the abuse that people are faced with when they even leave the house in public settings. We heard from people of short stature who talked about having, you know, instances of being mocked, picked up off the ground, laughed at, ridiculed. And this is by strangers. Even a woman talked about being regularly sexually assaulted, you know, having people put hands down her top um, without her asking and saying horrible, horrible things. And some of the mums who shared experiences about um, you know, needing to basically fight for their child with intellectual disability to be seen by parts of the healthcare system as a valuable member of society and that their life was seen as equal value um, as you or I sitting here today. And it was really sad to hear those mums say that on many occasions when they've turned up to a hospital in certain parts of this country that they haven't felt like their child's gotten the care that they deserved. Are you hopeful, Naz, that things are going to get better? Yeah, I think I have no choice but to be hopeful. I think I've seen so many steps forward in the last few years and I think the community as a whole needs to feel hopeful because otherwise this Royal Commission will be for nothing. And, you know, people have been brave enough to share their stories and the community now wants to see recommendations that are significant, that are impactful and the community wants them implemented because if people were brave enough to put themselves out there to share their stories, they want all governments and, quite frankly, all of society to be brave enough to make the monumental changes we need to make as a whole um, to make sure that people in this country are safe and treated fairly. Naz, it has been a long road. It's not over yet. But can (laughs) I say your work has been exemplary, like really on behalf of, you know, us here at Hack, but the media in general in this country, we owe you a massive thanks for your tireless reporting on these issues in the lead up to the Royal Commission or through all those Royal Commission hearings. It's been extraordinary. Thank Disability you. Affairs reporter Naz Campanella, thank you. Thank you. Hack. Frank Rubio, the U.S. record holder for the longest single space flight in history, back on Earth. On Triple Jack. Going to space looks easy, doesn't it? Like you see it on the movies or even the real-life footage on the news, floating around, having a bird's-eye view of humanity, then coming back to Earth. But what kind of impact does space have on your body? Because an American astronaut's just returned to Earth after spending more than a year in space... He set a new record. 
He was actually only supposed to be up there for six months, but it was extended because of some technical issues. And this astronaut, Frank Rubio, said, well, if he knew it'd be that long, he probably wouldn't have gone in the first place. So what goes on with your body when you're in orbit for such a long period of time? Well, let's ask an expert. Gordon Cable is one of our leaders in aerospace medicine. He's from ANU. G'day, Gordon. Thanks for coming on Hack. G'day, Dave. Nice to be here. How are you? Yeah, well, thank you. I want to know how Frank Rubio would be feeling now that he's just got back to Earth. After, yeah, more, be... than a, after more than a year in space, what, what would be going on there? Uh, he'd be feeling pretty wobbly, uh, probably for at least a week or two, uh, coming back, getting his Earth legs back after being in weightlessness for that period of time. So it's, it's quite a rehabilitation process he's going to have to go through, uh, getting used to the, the gravity again that he hasn't had for better than 12 months. Um, his blood pressure is going to be struggling to stay up there and his balance and, and coordination are going to be pretty uh, poor for the you know, first week or so that he gets back. So he'll need a lot of help in uh, getting his systems back up and running. Do we know much about the long-term impacts of orbit on the human body? Yeah, look, we're learning all the time. I mean, the problem is that, uh, you know, in all human history, there's probably been 620 humans that have been to space and we've learned as much as we can. But in terms of medical research, obviously, that's a small number of people. So we you know, are continuing to look at the challenges because we are going to have to go to space for much, much longer as we go forward in time. We have plans to go to the moon for longer and Mars, of course. But yes, look, you know, 12 months, uh, you know, we, we know a lot about what happens to bones and muscles. We know a lot about what happens to the cardiovascular system in the eyes. I mean, there really isn't a single body system that isn't impacted. And from time to time, some surprises really pop up, like what happens to the, the genes, the, the way that you code proteins from the genes and the way that your blood uh, circulates and, and or doesn't circulate in microgravity and can lead to clotting. So there's a whole range of things that are problematic with long-term exposure to space. What are some of the biggest things that happen to the body? Like, for instance, you know, even just purely looking at someone, do they tend to lose a lot of weight, for instance? Yeah, look, the weight loss tends to be, well, two things. First of all, they tend to lose muscle bulk. So they need to be exercising every single day for a couple of hours, doing both cardio and uh, and uh, weightlifting exercises uh, on the space station to try and keep their muscles healthy. Um, but uh, they also lose weight because they lose fluid. The fluid redistributes. And because it does that, the kidneys uh, secrete more fluid. So you lose some fluid volume. So there is a little bit of weight loss that goes on over time. Uh, and, uh, and bones, of course, get thinner as well. But the idea of the exercise, uh, you know, when you're on the space station, uh, both aerobic on, on cyclogometers and on a treadmill and, and the weightlifting machine that they've got, the whole idea there is to try and build bone strength, make sure the bones don't lose calcium and make sure the muscles don't atrophy too much. And, you know, we do a, a reasonably good job with the strategies that we have together with using some medication to make sure that that, uh, that is maintained. But, you know, going further into space, we aren't necessarily going to be able to use exactly the same techniques that we're using now. Is it true that you get taller in space? Yeah, it is true, Dave. Yeah, I mean, you, you grow because your spine stretches uh, under the influence of gravity. We are a little bit more compressed on the surface than the Earth. When we, when we go to space, the discs uh, stretch up a little bit and our spine gets longer. So you can grow something like six to seven centimetres in microgravity. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, there's probably other stuff that we don't think a lot about, like to do with your skin or your gut health even, because the, you're not exposed to all of the same, uh, I don't know, microbes and things in space as you would be on Earth. Well, you know, funnily enough, you sort of are. The the microbes in space are the same ones that you take with you and the International Space Station has a very healthy microbiome and they have to swab regularly and make sure they clean because there are 
various types of bacteria all throughout the station and in your gut as well you know you've got bugs in your, in your mouth in your nose and we know over time actually the populations of bacteria do change a little bit they change uh, their their nature their their distribution the numbers of them change the gut flora changes a little bit so all these things are really important to understand not only nutrition for astronauts how they metabolize drugs for example they might take but also immune health how that affects the immune system uh, in deep space as well and what's the rehabilitation like when you get back like is it a big journey uh, for this astronaut now frank rubio does he have a few months years of recovery on the cards well, he'll be probably being monitored very closely for at least three to four weeks and having physiotherapy and specific exercises to rebuild his strength and rebuild his muscles. But we know that uh, you know he will be monitored very closely for, well, the, really the rest of his life, but he'll be tested probably every year for the rest of his life to make sure that all his body systems are working properly and he's not developing any problems. We know, for example, that the bones, whilst they to get their calcium back, the structure, the architecture of the bone does change. And we're not sure that that actually comes back to normal when you come back to Earth. So there's a little bit of a concern now that, it, you know, it can take 12 months for bones to even start to look normal, maybe even out to three years. But the architecture within the bone might actually look a little bit different. That is so interesting. And I think people are fascinated to hear about all things space, especially these impacts on the human body, especially as we see people potentially going into space for tourism and all kinds of things in the future. We appreciate your kind of knowledge on this. It's a fascinating area that you're in. Gordon Cable from ANU, thank you very much for making the time to come on Hack. Been a pleasure, Dave. Nice to talk to you. We've got a lot of messages coming through about the Disability Royal Commission findings, which are going to be made public this week. Also about the Voice to Parliament stuff. And just to remind you, we're going to be continuing to bring you uh, both sides, to bring you the arguments, to interview politicians on this as we come up to the referendum. Do not worry. You're going to have plenty of information on that. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.